0: Some times I wonder why I spend the lonely night drinking of a soul the male- Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Volts. With me as always, my main man and co-host, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, Steve? Oh, well, I feel good today, folks Good, good, good. Today we have a uh, uh, a show that maybe people wouldn't think of the topics that that we would cover, but we came across this information. We found it to be extremely interesting. Um, like we're, tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, like real shrunken heads and cannibalism and uh, the dark side of it. And not that I can find a positive light to it, but um, I would think that uh, you know, thinking back throughout. My life, probably my first exposure to ever hearing of a not necessarily hearing, but maybe seeing an example of cannibalism, was the movie Alive. Steve, you know that movie, right? I do know the movie Alive. It was a bunch of, sh- of
1: soccer players. I don't know it was with the Andes or the Alps or something. Yeah, the they're Andes. in a plane. The
0: plane goes down in the mountains, and there's like not a lot around them. Right. I mean, and they're faced with the fact because. The, the part of the plane that broke off for them didn't have any part of the, the food cart on it. That was in the other half that blew off somewhere else in the Andes Mountains, which they find later. But spoiler alert from the 90s. 93. <laughs> <'93. laughs> yeah. Um, but they have to come to uh, a real moment where they're sitting in the, the, the shelter of this plane now, and they're out of food. And they start having this discussion on, we need to eat the dead and some people are all against it. Some are just like, well, look, we got to do it. People understand. And I can relate with almost everybody's emotion that they're thinking. You're like, I'm starving to death, but I'm never going to be the same after this. Well, they ran the whole gamut.
1: They had, you know, a, dis- a days long discussion about it before it actually happened. They brought spirituality into it, the whole nine yards. But in the end, it was sustenance that they seeked, and in eventually
0: that's what they got. Right, and without doing that, they never would have freed themselves. And this is a true story. Um, two guys, they basically walked from stranded hundreds of miles in the Andes Mountains and walked to Chile to get help and then come back and save the remaining people. That were still alive, and heroes. They, yeah, and they were still, and those people back at the plane, they were still only alive because uh, they gave into cannibalism, so that they could eat, or so that they could get back and see their families, their children. Well, I mean, that begs the question, folks. I mean, look, would uh, you do it? Would see, you do it? I can't. I can't give a an assessment or a good projection on what I would say because I have, thankfully. Living here in the United States, I've have never felt that type of hunger. I've been hungry and said, "Oh my gosh, I'm starving." I could eat a horse. Yeah, but I mean that's just slang. Um, I, I, I can't say I I, I wouldn't I, I would not. I, you know I, I I wouldn't say it's not like I'm seeking out to do it or that I would be anxious to, but I don't know what it's like to be on the verge of death. Also, with my wife and children at home, not ah. knowing whether I'm still alive. I gotta get back to them somehow so Yeah, knows? when you say it like that
1: that kind of makes me think differently. Like if it was like a, by any means necessary situation, like I can stand here and say I wouldn't do it. But then when you were just like, dude, don't you wanna like go back to your wife and kids? Of course I do. Now I no, I probably would do it. Yeah,
0: and your only way of doing that is making sure that you have nourishment because there's a scene in the movie where the guy's listening to his headphones and he hears them call the, call the watch off for them. They're just like, they're gone. They're dead. So no one's looking for you now. And for me, I would never want – Oh, what torture that would be on your family? They're just like, well, they're – for a while they didn't know whether you're alive or dead then they come back and they say that you're dead and then you come back and you're like, no yeah, eventually you walk through that I walked door. from the Andes, <laughs> and I'm not talking about flatlands here people mountain ranges where no they didn't have the equipment or the or the the clothes on to do it, but the human spirit was greater, but their bodies would have given out without fuel, and that fuel was cannibalism. Hope, man. I always say, hope is a
1: powerful human emotion. With hope, you can get through the Holocaust. With hope, you can change the way a civilization acts. There's so much that goes on with hope.
0: There is now, in being that that's that's a true story, and it ends it ends great for some—the people that survived and and their family members that got to see these people again. There is a, a another like i guess dark side you would say to cannibalism even within like tribes within like the amazon um they're uh they go beyond cannibalism they 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 go into a practice of shrunken heads this really kills me yeah and you know if you think back to like indiana jones movies like maybe even the temple of doom um you see shrunken heads in there and they can represent a number of different things and that's what we're going to get into um First, we're gonna go and we're gonna cover uh, some like disturbing facts about shrunken heads, and then we're gonna go into a little bit more in cannibalism, and uh, it's pretty interesting. So we hope that you feel the same. Steve, you want to kick off, or do you want me to kick off?
1: Yeah, man. Let's take a look first at the shrunken heads. So, are are they real? Like, are shrunken heads real? Um, you know, how are they made? Although the realities of shrinking heads are gruesome. It's also intriguing, really. So if you've ever wanted to know the facts about shrunken heads, here we go. What were shrunken heads used for? Well, they are also called sansas. And sansas are severed human heads that were used by tribal cultures in a myriad of ways. Sometimes they were used as trophies. In other cases, tribes might use them to scare off an enemy. Using the heads as a threat. These were also used in religious rituals, and recently they were even used for trade purposes.
0: So uh, a litany of different reasons why one would decide to uh, process (laughs) and make their own shrunken head. And a lot of different countries and cultures perform uh, head shrinking. You have um, Piancho or Pitu, Achucur Shaman, and the Xivarayan indigenous people from northern Peru and eastern Ecuador. Now, although head hunting is a common practice among these ancient tribes, the act of shrinking those heads have only been found throughout the northwestern Amazonian region of South America, known as the Givron people. These tribes in the Amazon region include Shuar, Achuar, Huambisa, and Aguarana people of modern-day Ecuador and Peru. Now, additionally, there is some evidence that the Aztecs practiced shrunken head ritual along with tribes in some areas of modern-day Venezuela. It seems to be a tradition that is most often associated with indigenous South Americans and has been brought into voodoo culture of similar origins.
1: Now, you hear people use the term savage. It's kind of a trendy thing to say nowadays, like, oh, man, that guy's a savage. Yeah. But this, these
0: people are truly savages. Oh, 100%. I mean... Look at the... Uh, who, I guess it was the Aztecs, maybe, that uh, in those temples... I mean, they used to just cut people's heads off, let them roll down the steps, and the steps would be covered in blood. I mean, that's savagery.
1: Yeah, they would have those temples where the top of them would be human sacrifice.
0: Like They'd just have a table up there. Yeah, right? for rain or for crops or whatever. So, no. yeah, we are talking about some savage stuff today. So, Steve, are shrunken heads real human heads, though?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, yes, they are. They're real human heads, Uh, That means that if you've seen authentic Sansas exhibited at museums and in private collections around the world, they would have belonged to an actual human being at at one point, which is pretty crazy. However, it is now estimated that 80% of all these heads in museum
0: collections are actually counterfeit versions of the tribal token. So that means that, I mean, they had to have at least tested them then if they're saying that these museum collections are counterfeit, which, you know, I'd almost hope that they would be. I mean, it's the remains of somebody that's dead. It's their flesh anyway. Yes. And that's the
1: thing. It doesn't – I don't think the actual number matters. The, what matters is that
0: this occurred. Yeah. To somebody, regardless right. of circumstance. I mean, well, that, I mean, let's. I'm going to get into this next section of, of how they're actually made. Now, the shrunken head rituals seem to be most often associated with war and superstitions behind getting rid of your enemy. And the headhunter warriors, they would decapitate enemies of the tribe. And depending on the ritual, the shrinking process could begin right away. The warrior might remove their headband and thread it through the neck and mouth of the decapitated head for easy transport. The warrior also might make an incision from the back of the neck all the way up the skull, preparing to remove the skin and hair. After a successful hunt, the priest began the shrinking head process. The discarded skulls would often be offered to anacondas, which were seen as spiritual guides in their culture. Then once the warrior returned to the tribe, the boiling process would begin, with lavish celebrations full of eating and drinking. First, the eyelids were sewn shut, and the lips were skewered with sticks. Then, in a large boiling pot of water, the heads were simmered, emerging about a third of their original size with darker skin that was more rubbery and tough. And the process continues as hot stones and sand were placed inside the heads, which created a tanning effect on the inside, and the head was shaped further using additional hot stones until it was molded into its desired shape. Finally, the head were rubbed with charcoal or smoked over a fire to blacken as it was believed that this would keep away the avenged soul from escaping the head. Then, the head was placed on a stick or attached to a string as a trophy either carried or worn around the warrior's neck. Dang. Imagine what that smoked face smelled like over that fire. <laughs> oh, my God.
1: Well, I mean, there's so much like the... um the charring of the the face so that the soul could not escape and just carrying it around would just be torture for a
0: stuck soul it t- totally would you're going everywhere steve does are are they still practicing this today well well steve <laughs> <laughs> actually the traffic of in these heads was outlawed by the ecuadorian and peruvian governments in the 1930s But there doesn't seem to be any laws in Ecuador or Peru that prevent shrinking heads outright. In the 90 years since lawmakers made the sale of sansas illegal, it may have still been practiced by older generations. But the more Western culture and religion seeped into the area, the less these rituals were executed. Most likely an authentic head hasn't been made in over 20 years, is what Steve was going to say. What I was going to do was ask you how long it would actually take to make the shrunken head. Oh, that's what you were going to ask me. Sorry about that. Well, I did leave out a part. (laughs) My fault. Well, the shrinking head process doesn't take long at all. The ritual side of things, on the other hand, would usually last a total of about six days. For the heads to shrink, they would be boiled for only about two hours, Boiling it for too long would leave them ending up rubbery and gooey and destroyed, of course. Yeah, why wouldn't they? Exactly. Don't overboil your head. Although although it doesn't take an exorbitant amount of time, surprisingly, these were discarded immediately after the ritual and celebrations were complete. But when tourists and collectors started to become interested, these tribes saw an opportunity to use the shrunken heads as goods in trading practices. Otherwise, they were often fed to animals. (laughs) <laughs> or given to children as toys. <laughs> That's the part I couldn't live without. I was like, oh, we miss the children with toys.
1: Could you imagine? It's it's shrinking head day. You know, Saturday or whatever comes around, and everybody's shrinking their heads, and they have this big ritual. And as soon as the ritual's over, they're like, all right, heads mean nothing. Get rid of them. Here, throw it with uh, whatever the dog's name is. Here, throw it to the dog. There you go, buddy. Get yourself a head. Go uh, chew on it like a bone. Or the kids.
0: Give it to a kid. I mean, imagine like the kids that didn't have one in their hut. Like, you know, mommy, daddy, can I have a human head? Mobutu has the human head. Right. (laughs) Kevin has one. Kevin.
1: (laughs) Of course, Kevin's got one. (laughs) I want one, too. We didn't make a human head It's this Saturday. Maybe next week you can have a shrunken head. Honey, Kevin's next. (laughs)
0: It might be Kevin's head next week. Can I have it? Can I play with it? All right, so, Steve, how about can shrunken heads be obtained or bought today? Well, these sansas, as they're called, from South
1: America were highly sought after commodities by Westerners, especially during the 1800s and the early 1900s. This meant that tribes actually started killing each other just to meet the commercial demand. That's how cheap the life was down there. It was like raising chickens. (laughs) Yeah. As previously mentioned, the sale of them became illegal in the 1930s, which discouraged murder for this purpose. (laughs) Like it needed discouraged. So if you see them being sold online, you can assume that they're not actually human heads that were shrunken in a tribal ritual. Still, if you're enamored by these cultures and superstitions, it might still be something that you want to have for yourself, regardless of its authenticity.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the studio could use a shrunken head, whether it, I mean, I don't even want it to be real. I'll order it tonight if you want one. I, I want one. I mean, it would fit in perfectly around here with all the I looked.
1: Other. I looked at all of uh, the available shrunken heads, and it is a vast, there's so many different kinds. So many different sizes, brands. Uh, Let's read this next part, and then we can talk about
0: it. All right. Now, what are shrunken head replicas made from? Now, shrunken head replicas can be made of synthetic materials such as leather or fabric, while others are made of animals such as pigs, cows, or chimpanzees. However, the legality of using animals for this purpose is also in question. As you might imagine, many fake sansas are offered and sold as genuine to collectors, casual buyers, at a relatively high price. So even if the seller is claiming to have a real shrunken head, it's smart to be skeptical of such claims if, if you're in the market. Overall, the heads have gruesome yet interesting history, and these artifacts have surely made their way into mainstream culture. Now, you probably associate shrunken heads with voodoo or Harry Potter magic, but hopefully these shed some light on their origins. So I think that the studio's shrunken head
1: should be a synthetic
0: I'm down with the synthetic.
1: You know how like people don't use fur anymore because fur is murder?
0: Of course. Well, I don't think we should use a chimpanzee face, shrunken head. Do that. No, I don't. Do they the missing link, for gosh sakes. They're only, what, 3% different than us?
1: I don't want to encourage someone to go out and, and into the jungle, hunt down a chimpanzee.
0: We're not trophy hunters.
1: Just so that we can have it hanging in the studio. I think that would be wrong.
0: So well maybe uh, until the shrunken heads run wild <laughs> we're, we're not gonna be sniping any what about pig well I mean it all depends I mean if the if, if you if you'd have to get it from I guess a butcher already because I wouldn't go out and intentionally kill a pig for it so you'd have to get the head from
1: like the leftover pig skin yeah. I mean maybe if it was leftover I could justify that but I'm still thinking synthetic because it's got a smell yeah
0: I we just want it for the look.
1: Let's get a synthetic.
0: Synthetic it is.
1: Should we get one like at the end of Beetlejuice?
0: Yeah. I like that one. I like that one a lot. Shrinks down. I think there's like hair coming out. supposed of the to be top. a sequel coming out, so hopefully that little shrunken head's in there too again. Michael Keaton. All those guys. Alec Baldwin.
1: Mm. Winona Ryder.
0: Yeah. Good ones. All right. So we started off the podcast and we're talking mostly about cannibalism because we're talking about the movie Alive and such. So we're going to get into uh, cannibalism now. Now, cannibalism, it can show up at the most unexpected points in history. Most people don't associate cannibalism with the Soviet Union. But as Timothy Snyder describes in his book Bloodlands, the 1933 Stalin-imposed famine in the Ukraine was so, so severe that cannibalism became surprisingly prevalent. The state had to set up an anti-cannibalism squad, and hundreds of people were accused of eating their neighbors, or, in some cases, their family members. Historians and anthropologists have studied the history and science of cannibalism over the years, why it happens, when it occurs, and who's affected. It tests the ultimate boundaries of cultural relativism, health, and ritual. Though this isn't at all comprehensive, it catalogs some of the unusual things of cannibalism you might have missed. It turns out there are a lot of myths about cannibalism and how it's been practiced over time. And here are some few surprising things experts have learned. And Number one is humans are mostly hardwired against cannibalism, but not always. There's a good biological reason why cannibalism is taboo in virtually every culture. Eating other humans can make you sick specifically eating the brain of another human, can cause kuru, a brain disease that's similar to mad cow disease. Kuru occurs because our brains contain prions that transmit the disease. Symptoms begin with trembling, and they end in death. That's a good deterrent. That is definitely, and uh, me and Steve were talking about earlier, if you've ever seen the movie The Book of Eli, they do a good job of portraying that, because there's cannibals in that. and. You know, their bodies are shaking and rejecting. They're dying.
1: Yeah, it's post, post-apocalyptic movies, so there's no farming going on. And, you know, this old couple just has a bunch of meat laying around that they're offering for people, but their hands are shaking. You can tell right away, like, yeah. something's wrong.
0: Yeah. Now, not, not everybody falls victim to the disease. But what's surprising, though, is that it isn't always the case. Among anthropologists, the four people in Papua New Guinea are known for cannibalism. And up until the late 1950s, they ate the bodies of relatives to cleanse their spirits. Thousands of four contracted Kuru and died. Kuru actually comes from the word of shaking, but not all of them fell victim to the disease. Over the last 200 years, some four have also developed a genetic mutation that protects them from the prions that transmit Kuru. The four were adapting to cannibalism, with natural selection possibility playing a role in reducing their susceptibility to the disease. Scientists have been trying to study this further, but in recent decades, cannibalism has been declining among the four because of the changing social mores and laws. If that continues, Kuru may be wiped out entirely. So yeah, that right there is crazy
1: that this tribe is eating people and they've developed like a callus on your hand. But yeah. the calluses in their brain, they're becoming immune to this prion that's in the brain
0: of a human that makes it so humans can't eat each other. Just like uh, you know, the, the, like human flu strains, we get it and we're immune from that strain. It's crazy that that happened. It is. I mean, that's 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 evolution right there, my friend. Let's talk
1: about the animal kingdom, though. Okay, our animals. Mostly hardwired against cannibalism. Well, yeah, but not always. Cannibalism is rare in the animal kingdom, except when it isn't. A few years ago, Natalie Angier of the New York Times chronicled the tales of the cane toad, caesolean, redback spider, and other animals that eat their own species. The cane toad, for example, actually prefers cane toad eggs to other options. How can that possibly be a good idea? Well, here's Angier. Researchers propose three motives. The practice speeds up maturation. It eliminates future rivals who, given a mother's toad's reproductive cycle, are almost certainly unrelated to you. And it means exploiting an abundant resource that others find toxic, but which you are immune.
0: When I was a kid, we had uh, hamsters. And the mother gave birth to them, and she ate, she had like four or five babies, she ate them all. Really? Yeah.
1: That's unusual, I didn't know that they did that too. Yeah. Those evolutionary imperatives extend to a wide range of organisms, even including occasionally cannibalistic delayances from animals like the sloth bear. As Mary Bates described in Wired, it's not unknown for sloth bears to eat members of their own family, possibly because they're under stress. These human and animal cases are more than curious footnotes. They show that evolution can work in ways that run counter to our cultural values. Evolution happens through natural selection and doesn't always line up with things we might value as a society, And evolved cannibalistic behavior illustrates that important distinction.
0: Wow. Now, cannibalism was named after people who might not have been cannibals. Now, a few basic questions about cannibalism are difficult for historians to answer. Like, how many groups practice cannibalism? When did it start? And how common is it? Those questions are tough because cannibalism has been used throughout time to describe many different things. That's also the reason most modern anthropologists and scientists prefer the term anthropophagy to cannibalism. There are cultures that engaged in cannibalism as ritualistic practice, but there are also times when people resorted to cannibalism during famine, and at times the word cannibalism has been used to describe all sorts of tactics and people, seen as savage. Cannibalism is occasionally descriptive, occasionally circumstantial, and occasionally an indirect ethnic slur. Case in point, the word cannibalism itself comes from the name of the Spanish gave to the Caribs. The Spanish accused the Caribbean tribe of ritualistically eating their enemies, but modern-day scholars have doubts that it actually happened. Because the Caribs were engaged in anti-colonial battle with a host of European powers, many historians now argue that cannibalism rumors were just propaganda tactic by the Spanish meant to stir up fears. And we know in this day and age there's plenty of propaganda, so they've been pushing it for a long time. On the other hand, we have some evidence that the Caribs used body parts as trophies. So cannibalism is a possibility, especially as intimidation measure or an act of war. However, most of our initial testimony comes from Columbus, who had many reasons, both personal and political, to make the Caribs seem as savage as possible, which he slaughtered anyway. I got a question for you, ma'am.
1: So cannibalism, as we have been discussing it, meant eating someone else. Yeah, the
0: process of eating another human being, or the so, same species.
1: But they're saying things like using body parts in a ceremony— and measures of act of war. So if and this is like something I heard like from Vietnam or something where they would have like a necklace with ears on it from the people they killed. Sure. Is that
0: cannibalism? I guess if if you're not eating them, no. Ah, okay. That's just a sick trophy.
1: Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're sticking with cannibalism is eating yeah, the yeah. eating the of process the of ingesting
0: another human being or something of the same species.
1: Thanks, Thanks for clearing that up. Oh,
0: that's what we're here for. So what's next? Cannibalistic rituals could surprisingly be complex, Steve, right? I would say one of the
1: most and first prominent European accounts of cannibals appeared in Montan's late 1500s essay of cannibals. In addition to being an invaluable anthropological record of the Tupi people, In what is now Brazil, the essay sheds light on the intricate practice of cannibalism at the time. Sometimes the Tupi lived with their captives for months before they were eaten, and they sang to each other. Oh, God. How do you th- you think that's Montaigne? Yeah. As Montaigne recorded, the captors taunted captives by entertaining them with threats of their coming death. <laughs> and the captives replied in a fashion that was like a song or chant, Montaigne writes. That's awful. I have a song composed by a prisoner which contains this challenge, that they should all come boldly and gather to dine off him. For they will be eating at the same time their own fathers and grandfathers who have served to feed and nourish his body. These muscles, he says, this flesh and these veins are your own, poor fools that you are. (laughs) Musicologist Gary Tomlinson, who wrote about the Tupi in The Singing of the New World, describes it as an economy of flesh that passed through the warring tribes for generations. It was a transaction across generations in these warring societies, Tomlinson says. They were saying, in the future, you will be captured by my people, and we will eat you. And And the transaction goes on and on.
0: That's nuts.
1: So this song. <laughs> that you have to learn the words to. I'm sure it's taught by, you know, if your father your grandfather they're like,
0: look. If you're ever captured.
1: You're going to get captured. And this is what I want you to say. I want you to say, go ahead and eat me. Because you're just eating your own people. Yep. And then they're going to sing back to you a similar song. We've been eating your people. You've been eating our people.
0: But now today I'm going to eat you. Tomorrow we may eat you. Tomorrow you may eat me. And you know, it's not such a foreign concept either because cannibalism was practiced in colonial America. Many people think of cannibalism in distant history in undeveloped countries, but cannibalism was a feature of early American history too. In the 2013, archaeologists revealed they found evidence of cannibalism in colonial Jamestown, an indication of just how desperate earlier colonial life had been. Specifically, they discovered markings on the skull of a 14-year-old girl that strongly indicated she had been eaten by settlers during the particularly difficult winter of 1609. It was more concrete evidence for something historians had read stories about for years. As Howard Zinn exerted in People's History of the United States, one government reported painting a grim picture of that winter, driven through insufferable hunger to eat those things with which nature enamored the flesh and excrements of human as well of our own nation as of an of an Indian excrements that's disgusting it's awful now the Donner Party wasn't solely about cannibalism when most people think of cannibalism in America they probably think of the Donner Party the famous travelers who resorted to the practice when they were stuck in the snowy Sierra Nevada mountains while traveling west in 1846 What's surprising, however, is the contemporary accounts of the trip focus less on the lurid accounts of the cannibalism and more on the breadth and hardship of the party that they endured. As Donner Party historian Kristen Johnson notes, out of the more than 300 newspaper articles about the Donner Party published in 1847, the most common headline is variation of from California a mere 7 contain the word cannibalism. Accounts tended to highlight the fact that the party only resorted to cannibalism after eating boiled animal bones, hides, and even a beloved dog. What's more, many people were just interested in the legends about the Donner Party, buried treasure, as they were in in the cannibalism. In the 1890s, the Sacramento newspaper reported the treasure rumors made people of Chucky, California feverish with excitement and included discoveries that would delight the heart of a (laughs) pneumomasticist. The treasure was probably a myth, but it shows that the story was considered far more complicated and less purely shocking than it is today.
1: The dog's name was Uno.
0: Rest in peace, Uno.
1: Uno was a sacrifice.
0: Yep. He
1: and, was boiled. And then they ate their, uh, their the other people in the party. You know, that's, that's how it went down back then. That's not really a great party. I bet you that's where the term only
0: the strong survive came
1: from. Ah, I'm telling you, dude, you know what we should do. This is what we should do. It would be like a practical joke. We'll open a restaurant like downtown on Restaurant Row, but we won't say on the outside what we serve. And then when people come in to sit down, we'll give them the menu, and the menu will just be cannibalistic things. Shrunken head. And when uh, shrunken head soup, and when and when they ask like the waiter or the waitress like, is this, you know, is this a joke? Like, what, what am I reading? We'll have them just straight face seriously be like. No, it's a this cannibal restaurant. Like this, we we cook human. Like see, right there is the brain. Right there is you know part of the body, and see how many people get up and walk out. But the real thing would be see how many people
0: don't. I think people would realize that it's probably not because word would have got out, and it'd just be a delicious restaurant with like a uh, dark twist. (laughs) Oh, that would be funny. Now they say that can. Eating people can uh, make you sick with kuru, but can it be used to treat at all? Well, there are many horrifying examples
1: of cannibalism in Europe throughout history, but one of the most bizarre is that cannibalism was occasionally seen as a remedy. To pick one example, in Germany from the 1600s to the 1800s, executioners often had a bizarre side job that supplemented their income selling leftover body parts as medicine. Apothecaries regularly stocked fat, flesh, and bone. As described by Kathy Stewart's defiled trades and social outcasts, human fat was sold as a remedy for broken bones, sprains, and arthritis. Usually, this human fat was rubbed as a balm, not eaten. However, apothecaries regularly carried stocked fat, flesh and bone and these were also examples of a human skull being ground down into a fine powder and mixed with the liquids to treat epilepsy I wonder if it worked that treatment may sound strange but remember eating placenta has become a modern day health fad most of the time the popular verdict on cannibalism is clear which is don't do it but occasionally what's cannibalism and what it isn't Has been surprisingly hard to define.
0: Yeah, and I think that the eating of the placenta has come a long way from just cutting out the placenta and eating it. Like they dry it, they can put it into pills for you. They can make it into a powder that you just make shakes out of. If you're into it, do it. I'm not into it. (laughs) Wow, I usually think it's for the women's nutrients. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't want. I, I I don't want it. I'm good. Yeah, I'm I'm cool with all that. Yeah, I mean, look, we've already established that the farthest that we're going to go with this is a th- synthetic shrunken head from Beetlejuice. Yeah, we wouldn't even take <laughs> So, I mean, uh, I think our stance on cannibalism is, is pretty clear. Um,
1: Defining borders. There you go. We found another border.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, we did that. It's. I mean, it's definitely different from some of our other topics that, we, that we've put out, um, but it's fun. I mean, it's an interesting topic. I mean... Ha- How many people know that much about cannibalism and what really goes on? And I know it's an interesting topic. I mean, if it was on National Geographic, I'm watching it. Right. I mean, shrunken heads,
1: it actually was something that those tribes did. And the savagery of cannibalism existed in other tribes to the point where they were evolving to not get sick after generations of it, to not get sick from it and taunting their
0: rivals oh, that was the, that was the funniest <laughs> part to me i taunting mean how awful. Rivals. but i mean i guess it's not as bad because the rivals just seem like they're like whatever i'll eat you next time <laughs> yeah my daddy's daddy gonna get you
1: and- right just generationally keeping it going
0: yeah well that's one of the things i guess we're uh growing up in in the area that we did we didn't have too much exposure to cannibalism and uh which i guess is a good thing but um i mean what else can you say it's a it's a dark practice but you know sometimes it was necessary like the movie in alive which if you if you haven't seen check it out it'll it'll make you question what you would do so uh i think i'm good on the topic steve how about you i think we did a good job very thorough yeah i think so too so it was fun And uh, until next time, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. We'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.